You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, on my Instagram, I've got two accounts. I've got my personal accounts, and I've also uh, got the King's Church Instagram account, which several of us have access to, just so you all know. Uh, now, on Instagram, there's a, there's a search feature. There's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an explore tab. And when you click it, the, the, the meta AI is, is uh, allegedly supposed to give you kind of personalized images and videos of, of accounts that you don't follow. Uh, so typically, uh, it's, it's said that this is based on kind of accounts that you interact with, uh, accounts that you've, you've, you've followed, uh, things that you've liked, uh, uh, things that you've explored, and, and things like that. Anyways, for whatever reason, we've, and we've never searched this honestly from, at least from what I know, uh, uh, but the King's Church Explore tab, the, the King's Church Search tab, is, is filled, it's bombarded with one particular topic. Over and over and over again, videos and images uh, just keeps showing up. Just this one particular thing just keeps showing up on our Explore tab, and I've, I've screenshotted it. What is that? Well, it's uh, WWE. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea why uh, this, this keeps showing up, but uh, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, there's been times where I've literally just kind of clicked a video, and it just keeps going, and I've seen all the, the wrestler gimmicks from the 90s, to the presence, the Stone Cold Stunner, the Rock Bottom. I think it might be Sam Trippy over <laughs> here, actually. Uh, all, all the, all the, the, the WWE, uh, uh, the wares. Uh, now I don't know what that, what that means, but uh, my other account, uh, my, my personal account, is completely different. Uh, none of that shows up on, on my personal account, so it's not a phone issue. On, on my little Explore tab. On, on my little search tab, it's filled with another particular thing. It's filled with uh, these, these particular images over and over and over again, these particular videos over and over and over again. It's bombarded by one particular thing. Well, what is that one particular thing? Well, I've also I've got a screenshot of that up on the screen. Well, it's, it's evangelical memes, <laughs> uh, uh, Christian, Christian jokes. I can't, I can't show the videos, but uh, up there on that, that collage, uh, you can kind of see what I'm talking about if you're, if you're new to this. Basically, uh, Christianity has a little bit of a subculture. And uh, if you've been around the block for a while, the, the subculture, the, the, the Christian subculture is a little bit weird. Uh, it's, 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 a little bit, it's a little bit cheesy, especially when Christians try art, which, which used to not be the case. But, but a lot of the subculture is built on the reaction to cliches. To cliches, the videos and the images are often making fun of, of Christian cliches. Now, a cliche is basically something that is uh, a saying that is overused. It's uh, it's a saying that's not fresh. It's a saying that's not original. Uh, let me just give you a couple examples. Some of you have heard these before. Let me just give you a couple examples of Christian cliches this morning. 
Maybe my first one, my first and, and, and most favorite. When God closes a door, he opens a window. God will never give you more than you can handle. Here's another one. Let go and let God. Uh, I only can do so many of these before, before I puke. Uh, you've, you've never, you're, you're never more safe when you're in God's will. It may be important for today. Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Those are cliches. They're kind of thrown around. They're not fresh. They're not original. But maybe worst of all, sometimes they're not right. Sometimes it's not the full picture. Now look, I'm sure the heart behind uh, giving cliches or, or sharing cliches with friends, I'm sure the heart behind it is good. I'm sure we want to comfort someone. I'm sure we want to help somebody who's, who's struggling. But the truth is, a lot of the cliches get made fun of because they're off, because they're distorted, because it's not the full picture. Now, why do I mention all of this? Because this morning, we've come to a passage, the end of Romans chapter 8, that is often used as the cliche incubator, the geyser of cliches, the cliche generator, the inspiration for all the cheese, Romans chapter 8. But this morning, we'll see the truth. We'll see the truth up close and personal, without distorting it, without dumbing it down. We'll see the original. We'll see the full picture. And what we'll find is that the truth is fresh, that it's original. It's truth that can comfort us this morning, truth that can help us when we're struggling, truth for life. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, sometimes he would go for weeks with bouts of depression, weeks of discouragement. And there was one time when his wife, his, his wife Katie, he was so depressed, he was so discouraged, she decided to put on a black dress. And she took a black uh, a curtain and she draped it over the door. It was her way of symbolizing that her house had become like a funeral. And so when Luther sees her, when Luther sees it, he says to her, what is going on? And so Katie looks at him and says, God is dead. And so Luther right away says, what? Don't, don't say that. It hits him hard. And she says, well, the way you're living, you're acting like he did. And this sarcasm hits Luther to the core. And so he goes upstairs and he sits at his desk and he spends some time thinking about it. And after some time in his study, he writes this Latin word, vavit, on his desk. This word, vavit. It means he lives. He lives. And this morning, the good news of Romans chapter 8 is that he lives. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you have been through, no matter what you're going to go through, this morning, God lives. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And if you know him, if you're intimately connected to him this morning, in the end, everything's going to be all right everything's going to be okay. My main idea this morning is not a cliche, but it's the truth of Romans 8. It's going to be up on the screen, up close and personal, and it's this. Our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. It's not a cliche, but it's the truth of Romans chapter 8, up close 
and personal. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our most truly good things can never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come because he lives. I have two points. They're going to flow right from this passage. You'll see these up on the screen as well. Number one, our bad things turn out for good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And secondly, our good things can never be lost. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Now, about a month ago, we finally arrived to Romans chapter 8. And this chapter is sometimes called the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, why is that? Because this chapter is so clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so clear about the central message of the Bible. And the gospel is the good news for you and I that there is now no condemnation for those of us in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, all the voices out there that are looking at your record, that have access to your record, all the voices out there that are saying, what about this? What about when he said this? What about when she did this? All of those voices are not the final word. The final word, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it is finished, paid in full. The gospel is that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for your sin and my sin. He paid it in full. It is finished. And the gospel is that on three days later, he came back to life. And he gives us his spirit. He gives us new life so that we would live not for ourselves, not for our sin, but we would live for the glory of God. But Romans 8 also says that the gospel isn't just good news for us individually. It's not just that he forgives us and empowers us by his spirit. It's also good news for the entire world. It's good news for the entire world. The gospel is that God is moving. He is making all things new. The picture is that the world is like a system, like an engine. Open up the hood and look at the engine. It's a system. All the components are supposed to work together in harmony. It's a system. But the situation is we've ripped out the pistons. We've ripped out the spark plug. We've thrown it all out. We've lost our relationship to God. And so the whole entire engine is breaking down. The parts are colliding. They're tearing each other apart. And so God looks at the world and he says, it's unraveling. But the gospel is that he's not left us alone. He's done something about it. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has launched a program. He has launched a mission to bring the world back, to redeem this world, and to be the center of it again so that it works, so that every part can work in harmony, building itself up for the glory of God. And to be in Christ this morning means that you've tasted that. And one day, when we see him face to face, we will taste it in full, when all things are aligned again, when God is at the center of it all. This really leads us to our first point this morning as we look to the end of Romans chapter 8. Our bad things turn out for good. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. So here in verse 28, we see some of the greatest truths of all time. That God is good and that God is in control, which means no matter what you're going through this morning, no matter what you have been through this morning, no matter what you're going to go through this morning, God lives. God lives. And if you're in Christ this morning, he has not been absent. He's been with you through the thick and the thin, through the highs and the lows. He's at work in each and every one of your circumstances, this text says, good or bad, for your ultimate good and for his glory. Now, how do we know that? Why, isn't that just a, why is that not just a sentimental promise? Well, verse 29 and 30. How do we know that? Because if you're in Christ this morning, he's way ahead of you. He's way ahead of you. Before there were ever ups and downs in your life, before there were ever challenges, before there were ever even good circumstances or bad circumstances, God knew you. He chose you. He set his love on you. He destined you to become like his son. He is deeply invested in you, Romans 8 tells us, which means salvation wasn't just an accident or random. It's not just a creed that we follow. It's God's grace to you. It means you're part of something way bigger than yourself this morning, something orchestrated outside of yourself. And in light of that this morning, you should have every confidence every confidence in the world that he has not been absent in your life. He is with you. He is working out all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Each and every one of your circumstances, God is working like a master weaver to bring it for your ultimate good and for his glory. Now, when a lot of people read verse 28, they read it unintentionally, and, and unintentionally they, they dub it down. And it becomes a, an inspiration for a lot of cheese, uh, a lot of the cliches that, that I shared. Uh, people read this verse and, and they think that what this verse is saying is that bad things happen, yes, bad things happen, but with God, something good is going to happen. They think, okay, I didn't get into grad school that I wanted to get into, but yeah, that must mean there's a better grad school for me elsewhere. They say, okay, I didn't, get to, I didn't get to marry the girl I wanted to marry. She got away. But what that must mean is that there must be another girl for me because God lives. They say, okay, it didn't work out here, which means, which means God is going to work it out there. It didn't work out here, which means God's going to work it out there. Essentially, how they're reading this verse is when God closes a door, he opens a window. When God closes a door, he, he opens a window. That's essentially how it's, it's read. Now, the good news this morning is that's not what the promise of Romans 8.28 is. If you get into a better grad school, awesome. That's God's grace. If, if you marry up, congratulations. That's God's grace. <laughs> if God blesses you in the next season, awesome, great. That's all God's grace. But that's not the promise of Romans 8.28. The promise of Romans 8.28 is that our God is so good and he's so committed to our good that he's taking all things, good, bad, he's taking all things and he's up to something with them. He's taking all of our pain. He's taking all of our losses. 
He's taking all of our setbacks, all of our unmet expectations, all of our joys, and in the grand scheme of things, he's making it serve a purpose, a purpose to bring good into our lives. How do we know that's true? Well, again, verse 29, the P word says, he predestined us. Predestined us for what? That we'd be conformed to the image of his son. In Romans 8, 28, God's essentially saying, I have invested in you. I've predestined you to be like my son. And I'll use everything and anything to help you to become like him. Said another way, the principle here that we see in Romans 8.28 is that God doesn't promise you better life circumstances if you love him. God doesn't promise you better life circumstances if you love him. He promises you a better life. Let me just say that again. God doesn't promise you better life circumstances if you love him. He promises you a better life. The good here, the better life, isn't the circumstances. It's not, if I don't get into the grad school I wanted, that must mean there's a better grad school for me. That's a circumstance. Marriage is a circumstance. Children are a circumstance. Financial prosperity is a circumstance. The good here, the better life, is, is a life that's becoming more like Jesus Christ. Free, loved, fully alive. That is God's goal for us. It's a life that knows joy above the circumstances. It's a life where even if you suffer, even if the circumstances aren't great, you're able to say, not my will, but your will be done. Because you know the pattern. The pattern of Jesus. Where suffering leads to glory. Where weakness leads to strength. Where pain leads to joy. So many of us, we know this, but if if you've been alive for uh, a decent amount of, of time, you start to pick up scars in life. Bad stuff happens. Sometimes if you think about it, those scars, those wounds can, can still hurt. But the wounds heal. And the good news is that they create depth. They create substance in us. They make us people that actually have something to say. They give us character, empathy, patience, mercy, compassion, wisdom. That's just kind of a hint of what this passage is saying here. God is using our bad things. He's using our good things. He's invested in us. He knows our biggest problems aren't our circumstances. He knows our biggest problems are ourselves. And he wants to shape us. He wants to mold us into the image of himself. Many of us, if we were at the cross of Jesus Christ this morning, and all we knew was this is a good man. This is a man who who healed people. This is a man who spoke wisdom. This is a man who did some miracles. This is Jesus of Nazareth. All we know is that it seems like God has clearly forsaken him. He's being murdered on a cross, 33 years old, cut off in the middle of his life. Many of us, perhaps all of us, would simply just lose our faith in that moment. We'd not be able to fit our minds around what God was up to in all the suffering and all the pain, saving the world, making all things new. When you feel lost, when you feel alone, when the bad comes, and it will, remember, he is an infinitely wise God this morning. Don't fall into that mistake. Trust him. He's in control 
and he's good. The passage continues, and we see our, our second point this morning. Our good things can never be lost. Our good things can never be lost. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? What things? That God's working out all things for our good. That verse 29, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? What's the response to the power of the gospel? The good news that God saves us from the beginning to the end. We're recipients of his grace. It says he foreknew us. It says he predestined us. Those words aren't there to confuse us or to to cause us to to raise all the issues that perhaps bother us with with these words when they come up. There is human responsibility. These words, the, the realities here are meant to comfort us, to help us see that God has set his love on us from the start to the finish. He's invested us. He's saved us. The passage goes on, and we'll see four rhetorical questions here as Romans 8 closes out. Four rhetorical questions. All these questions are about our security in Christ, our assurance in our salvation. Who could oppose God's grace on us? Who could accuse and win against God's mercy to us? Who could condemn us? Who could separate us? And we'll see that the answer to each of these questions is always always a long nobody. Nobody. This reminds me a little bit, this passage of my, my birth town team, the that's not my primary team, but the Cincinnati Bengals. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the, and the Cincinnati Bengals, as well as the, the New Orleans Saints, they have a, they have a popular chant. And the, uh, the, the Bengals chant goes something like, I'm not going to actually do it, but I'll just say it. Uh, who day, who day, who day think going to beat them Bengals? That's the chant. Uh, the Saints are who dat nation, the Bengals are who day nation. And the answer is always, as they finish the chant, it's always a long nobody. Now, I'm guessing Paul didn't know the chant, but it works here at the end of Romans chapter 8. The answer to each and every one of these questions is always going to be a long nobody. Nobody. So let's look at the questions. Question number one. If God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot of people can be against us. A lot of people can threaten your hopes, your reputation, your dreams. You can have a bad boss. You can have your own struggles. You can have an antagonistic person. Essentially, to follow Jesus in this world means you'll probably have people who are committed to misunderstanding you, who will oppose you. But the answer is nobody. If Almighty God is for us in Christ, if he's working to restore and to heal and to renew us, to make us fully alive, then nothing could finally stand in the way of that. If he's working to use us in this life for his glory, then nothing can stand in the way of that. If he's using setback, if he's using loss, if he's using even opposition for ultimate good, then nothing can stand in the way of that. He has a supporting thought on this first question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, he's saying, how can we know that God is actually for us? How can we know this morning that God is actually for us? And he says, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
He says, something has happened once and for all to prove, to demonstrate that God is for us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In light of that, how will he not graciously give us all things? It's essentially an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying all the things we really need, all the things that are actually best for us, we can trust God. At the cross, he's ultimately provided. So keep trusting him to provide. He is for us. Who could be against us? Question two and three, I'll put them together. Verse 33, who shall bring, he goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Said another way, all the voices out there looking at your life record saying, look at what he's done. What about this? What about when she said this? All of those voices are not the final word. The final words are paid in full. It is finished. The gospel is that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for your sin and my sin once and for all. He lived a life we couldn't live he died the death we deserve to die. And the gospel is that three days later, Jesus Christ gets up from the dead and he gives us life. He gives us his spirit. He's here for us always, interceding for us, praying for us. Who will bring any charge? Nobody in light of that. Who will condemn? Nobody in light of that. The passage closes asking finally question four. Essentially, they're all the same question. Question 4, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Said another way, this means that the God of the universe loves you this morning, not just now, but always. It's the greatest truth I know. It's a love that is in, in no way conditional. It's a love that will love you no matter what bad stuff is happening inside of you. It's a love that will love you no matter what bad stuff is happening outside of you. His love is patient this morning. It's kind. It's constant. It's unfailing. It's abiding. As we close this morning, Romans 8 starts by telling us that for those in Christ, there is now no condemnation. And it ends telling us that those of us in Christ, there is now no separation. No condemnation, no separation. The good news of the gospel is that because God is so way ahead of us, there is no condemnation. There is no separation. Before there were ever problems in us, before there will ever be problems outside of us, God knew you. He chose you. He set his love on you from eternity past and he destined you to become like his son. He's deeply invested in you this morning. 
Don't forget it. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.